Like, this was a discourse that made me think, like, we're never getting out of the patriarchy. I should abandon feminism right now. Hello, I'm Adrian Dobb. And I'm Moira Donigan. And whether we like it or not, we're in bed with the right. So Adrian, what have we got today? So today we're doing, well, what are we calling these? Shit. Like we should have, this is the kind of thing you clarify before you hit record. We're going to do an awards show. It's an end of the year wrap up show. Is it the worsties or the curseies or what are we calling these? I think curseties for the curse discourses of 2023. Yeah. The, mo- the most cursed discourses of 2023. Kirsty's just sounds like Karen's or something. It's like we're changing it to Kirsty, like Kirsty Allen. Oh, yeah. And that mellifluous voice <laughs> is our guest today, who we could not do this awards show without, the one and only Michael Hobbs. I'm glad I could be here for your little banter, your little, your little cold open banter. It's a special a scholar of cursed discourses. Exactly. I was going to say, if there's anyone who spent more time in the trenches of cursed discourses, I, I'm picturing you in like some subterranean, like, you know, archaeologist. And you're like, oh, this is unusually cursed. Uh, in the mines with Pamela Paul and Tim Yeah, Brooks. exactly. Yeah. You're like, oh, man, this is even by, even by their standards, this is dire. <laughs> And one of your co-hosts, you know, either Peter or Aubrey has to like, like yank you up by like some kind of uh, fail-safe mechanism as you're like, yeah, yeah. we got to, we got to cut out these cursage levels are off the charts. Dude, I'm recording three of these this week. Nice. Like the most cursed, like variations on the most cursed discourse <laughs> of the year. So I'm glad I could kick it off with you guys. This is my little practice run. Lovely, lovely. Well, um, you know, we were sort of thinking, one second, sorry. Yeah, you took off your underwear? I took off your this is on this is, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is gold this is comedy gold <laughs> you don't speak german with your kid adrian i thought you guys were would no, be like a bilingual I should. house i tried and then she really took to english and like english yeah. is what she's being yeah. exposed to yeah. maybe it's just objectively better it's got to be it we'll, yeah. we'll get her exposed at some point yeah i mean i'll, I'll return to germany at some point for more than a week. It will not be this year yeah. or, or next, but, you know, maybe they'll mm. they'll get over it at mm. some point. But people who speak German as their first language love it so much. It's like people who are from Chicago, you know, they just like, they go really hard <laughs> for German and for Chicago. And it's just like, I feel like... What do you- what are you basing this on? Die Hard movies? People love German. Well, I'm basing. <laughs> You're subtweeting Germany and Chicago. No, I'm, t- right I'm talking about like the sincere reverence. That people have for the German language, or maybe I'm thinking of like Hannah Arendt, like in that one interview where she's like, yeah, I do miss, I don't miss Germany, but I miss German. It's objectively like a more expressive language than English. It has way more words, which is actually surprising to me. Oh, is that true? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. German has like significantly more words than English. Oh, wow. Which is weird because I was like, we have so many loan words in English. We're taking from this and that. And I and then I looked it up and it's like I think twice as many in German. But it's not just like compound nouns because like you get to smash together any two nouns, right? Which is vaguely cheating my understanding is that it's bigger although like most people's functional vocabulary is something like five thousand words so it's not clear right, how much right. it matters but mm-hmm. there are like specific terms in it none of which i learned because my german is really shitty i'm sure that's not true i've, I've heard you order falafel in uh in, in german and it was it was very impressive <laughs> yeah. the one thing i'm able to do in german yeah i mean it went off beautifully <laughs> So, and ours, of course, our cursed discourses will have to, something to do with gender and sexuality, I guess. Although I have some, yes. I have some more general complaints too. Okay. <laughs> just gripes of people not putting yeah. a blinker on before like, they change I, I just, You know, I'm, I'm eventually hoping to parlay this whole thing into a sort of a, what is his name? Andy Rooney? 
Is that his name? Yeah, kids are on their phones these I days. Know. People are using different words. You guys are actually vocal no, fry. <laughs> actually spoiling some of my curses so like oh shit yeah you have, a vocal, yeah. you have a vocal fry okay <laughs> but how do we want to do this i i came up with three same cursed discourses that i like i have some honorable mentions same but i'm i'm happy to just go straight into the good shit and i also look if there's going to be no no overlap between me and michael i will I will be very shocked. I think I have one that you guys won't overlap with and one that all three of us will have. Nice. Okay, excellent. Nice, nice. Or like different versions of the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we want, how do, we want to do this? Does someone want to just, do we take turns nominating something? Yeah, and eventually maybe we can, towards the end of the episode, we can come to our honorable height of the most cursed. Oh yeah, name a winner. Name the most yeah. cursed. Yes, 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 yes. All right. You guys need something that people can add to your Wikipedia page. People love that. Every year is the Kirsties. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't have a Wikipedia page. You don't? Adrian, do you have a Wikipedia page? I have a Wikipedia page. I don't know who made it. And I'm, the only thing I noticed when it went up is I looked at the, you know, you can always see the discussion between all the moderators. Yeah. There's someone who really wanted to delete mine. And he's like, this person does not seem significant. And I'm like, you're telling me. Like, I uh, 100% Yeah, mine, agree. someone made one for me and then someone else deleted it because they were like, this guy's not famous enough. And I was like wholeheartedly nice. same <laughs> yes keep me yeah. the fuck <laughs> off of there Thank you. thanks mom <laughs> okay all right i will do the first kirsty okay. yeah and this one i will say i was trying to choose my three nominees my three honored nominees and it was kind of hard because I realized that a lot of what I think of as individual cursed discourses, we're all actually kind of one broader curse. That's discourse. what I have too. I have cursed <laughs> themes. Yes. yes. Of which we have already done a couple of episodes. <laughs> so it's like the things that have already pissed me off enough in the discourse that I like subjected Adrian to 90 minutes of my monologuing about them, such as like our episode on male loneliness, which was a discourse that I found especially mm. cursed. And I subjected Adrian to some time talking about it. And me on a bike ride, as I recall. Uh, I did not ride a bike with you, but you did ride your bike to brunch and arrive. Yeah, I listened to it on my bike ride. You guys were with me in a parasocial, think... in a parasocial oh. way. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I thought you had misremembered a bike ride you went on with somebody else. And we're like, that was Moira. No, I go on bike rides <laughs> with you guys all the time. Oh, you know, it's really lovely. Oh, that's so nice. But then I think that that's kind of related to another episode we did with Rebecca Traster about the decline oh, yeah. in marriage. Marriage. I have also been biking with Ms. Traster in my ear holes. A great yes. place to bike yes. with. And then declining birth rates. You know, these are all kind of a meta mm -hmm. discourse panicking about the state of the nuclear family and whether it can survive women's liberation, basically. To which I should, I certainly hope that the answer is no, <laughs> but a lot of other people feel different. <laughs> but this led me to one of the recurring cursed discourses that I believe started back closer to like 2020, 2021, but reached one of its apotheosis this year, which is trad wives. Oh yeah. Oh. Good one. Do you guys have any thoughts on the trad wives? I feel like we have to watch some TikToks together now. My favorite trad wife is kind of like the Ur trad wife whose name is Ballerina Farm. Okay. <laughs> That's not her real name. That's not her oh, okay. like government um, name. That's her internet I name. was like, well, she had no choice at that point. <laughs> <laughs> she is a ballerina and former Miss Utah who runs a like cattle ranch with her husband and makes a lot of TikToks when she, in which she's like wearing an apron, pregnant, pirouetting, and like also baking a pie. Hell yeah. They've got like a million Aryan blonde children. And it turns out that the whole thing is funded by her father-in-law's fortune because he's the founder of JetBlue. Oh. 
Okay. But one of the discourses that arose around trad wives was that being a trad wife was a privilege <laughs> and that it was objectionable not because it depicted women as belonging to a very narrow set of <laughs> life uh, as only, you know, providers of children and sex and, you know, cooking and cleaning, but that it was something aspirational that should not be posited as a positive because it was unrealistic. Not because it was sexist, but because it was too expensive. Okay. So it's like before you post your trad wife content, you should like examine your privilege of like <laughs> yeah, maybe like, not everybody. No, can not be a everybody trad wife. gets to be a trad wife. <laughs> yeah. Some of us have to have a more extensive sense of self and a life outside the yeah, home. Maura would be churning butter right now. But she has a job to do. Yeah. <laughs> if only, if it, well, like the other side of this was, well, it is men's fault for not sufficiently providing oh yeah nice so that we can be trad wives as if the problem with that like gendered like the, the the patriarchal bargain right is that like men don't hold up their end of it and i want to be like like this was a discourse that made me think like we're never getting out of the patriarchy i should abandon feminism right now and like go you know moon colony live in a in a bus in the woods or or you know on a homestead with eighty thousand uh white children <laughs> that i breed wait is this one of those like pac-man discourses where it's like so far like social justice left that it pops back out on the right on the right and it's like there's a few all of us would like to be trad wives but we don't have the ability or something i mean i do have to say that the idea of the daughter of the founder of JetBlue cosplaying little house on the prairie does have real marie antoinette vibes i mean like i i can see how people got there i mean i guess if people want to take away from that a tradition is a fiction and that you know it's usually just a coefficient of power like that seems fair but like why are men not providing enough that we could forswear our pesky careers in the legal profession or whatever, like, or in journalism, that is a particular level of cursed. Oh my God. I'm on her Instagram now. This is incredible. Oh, it's such a <laughs> rich one text. Where it's like, there's like the two, the thing on Instagram where you can upload two photos and you can like swipe between them. One of them is like her and her husband and they're like five or something like adorable kids. And then you swipe and it's her holding like a chicken and she's like cleaning out the chicken. <laughs> Like, that's her day. She's hanging out with the kids and she's like doing gizzard stuff. Yeah, she's got an aga, like in an old British country estate, one of those like huge mm. stoves. It's like the size of a wall. Uh, and she's doing a lot of her okay. videos in front of the aga. I can't believe you guys haven't been exposed to Ballerina Farm. This is a real cleave in men's and women's social media content. Dude, the algorithm knows that I'm a gay yeah. man after like two seconds of scrolling and just feeds me like men in tank tops and like <laughs> gymnasts. It's just like biceps, biceps, biceps. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. My Instagram feed is like all bizarre, like humor posts I've like clicked on and lingered on for too long. Like there's an Italian man who makes these disgusting food videos. Have you seen this? Oh, you gotta okay. find him. Like, like he's like the person oh. I don't follow who's like constantly in my feed and it's, it's the most upsetting content, but it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> no one dude no one believes me when i say this but i genuinely like don't do thirst follows i'm not like a i'm not like a horny instagram user but when i go to my for you page on instagram 100 shirtless men like buff shirtless men and like i don't know 
like where it is getting the data that like this is an interesting. Well, Ballerina Farms, I'm seeing no shirtlessness, which is like a first ding already, frankly. I know. Although maybe it'll feed me new <laughs> stuff now. Maybe this yeah, is good. Yeah, exactly. But then is she problematic or is she just like... Well, she is not the way some trad wives in this world or this like social media ecosystem are avowedly racist. That is not okay. part of her brand, right? That is okay. part of some tread wife brands like this creator oh, yeah. called wife with a purpose is like explicitly white nationalist yeah. she ballerina farm that is does do a lot of pronatalist content things like you know i am pregnant all the time but the and it's really hard but the childbearing years are short and i need to you know mm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, so it's got it's vol it's got a volkish tinge mm -hmm. beyond the like cooking videos okay. of which there's a lot. Cause I always want to try to be careful of like, some people just like, like doing this stuff and it's not particularly problematic. It's like people have different hobbies and for some people, their hobby is like doing stuff around the house and they're really into like posting pictures of their kids, which is all totally lovely and fine. But then this stuff does like tilt into like much worse territory. <laughs> no, it has an ideological project. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> not like, and she knows what she's doing. Uh, okay. So Ballerina Farm and the trad wife as not a gendered abnegation of the public sphere, but as a uh, sort of insufficiently humble flaunting of wealth has sort of gotten to me. You know, and it's true that like if you look at history, the housewife as she emerged in the 1950s was a white middle class phenomenon that was very historically bounded and was not accessible to, you know, famously like African-American families uh, mm -hmm. who needed two incomes, right? And that partly mm -hmm. what has led to the end of Housewives uh, as a like mass phenomenon is uh, like just wage stagnation and the fact that families now need two incomes to survive. But the other thing that has led to the downfall of housewives was like basic feminist interventions about women mm. having purpose beyond childbearing and rearing mm. and having talents and inclination to contribute those talents to the public sphere. And that that latter half of the argument against being a housewife has disappeared from the discourse. That is what mm. I nominate as cursed. Oh, I will say in her defense, her husband's screen name is the Hogfather, which is actually pretty good. <laughs> because, um, you know, in another life in another world, he could have been shirtless on your on you your know, feed. If he was shirtless, that would make the hog <laughs> Hogfather mean something very different. Yeah, yeah no, ho I mean Hogfather definitely. Is. That's taken. That's taken. Yeah. Uh, his OnlyFans is, uh, is 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 doing doing brisk business right now. What's yours, Adrian? What's your cursed, cursedest one? So I have to preface this with saying I'm old and I don't ever know when discourse is like, this is a discourse that came across my radar again this year. I think it's older than that by at least a few years. And this is the, this is one of those that like drives me crazy because like, I don't even understand what it is. So this is the one, mm. like, I don't know what the discourse is, but I needed to stop basically. It's when Gen Z queers have like anti-sex opinions and then millennials and gen x gays freak out about that opinion right so Adrian, like this is one of mine oh yeah 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 like why are the kids such prudes these days yeah, yeah, yeah. kink at pride right like it's always so i you know right. I'll, I'll just like read one of these like just without context right if you want young queers to associate with elder queers then maybe the culture shouldn't be so ridiculous and over the top 
I get secondhand embarrassment from drag queens and leather daddies and kinksters in pub hoods acting like they represent all gays. And then like one something like that will like start the entire discourse, right? Like elder gays kind of like dunking on oh pee on God. them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And here's why this drives me crazy. And I think Michael <laughs> can empathize with this. It has all the hallmarks of being fake, right? Like, is this <laughs> right. real? I don't know yeah, if yeah. it is. Like is is this just people picking out little bits of online discourse to get mad about, mm. right? Is this actually like a broadly held opinion or is this like a kid on Tumblr who like, yeah, maybe shouldn't, shouldn't have hit send, but like it's yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. Tumblr. We all overshare yeah. on these kinds of platforms, right? I'm actually amazed you found one to read out because every year I see the yeah. criticism of the no kink at pride yeah. discourse. And like in the wild, I have never seen a yeah. like no kink at pride. Yeah, I, no, I may not found a few, but like, each of these people has like 50 followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the ratio is through the roof. So you yeah. can tell that like basically that person got dunked on hard. Yeah. And like hardly anyone sort of writes back. Like And like everyone's just kind of outdoing yeah. themselves for clout in the replies. I'm like, given that this person like, I mean, let's be real here, probably hasn't had sex yet and is fairly young. Yeah, this is probably a 15... 15- 14 year old kid like yeah. what are you doing man like don't be in that don't yeah. don't be in their replies so it has like real kind of getting mad at the young energy mm-hmm. which is usually a dead giveaway to me that like there's some vital context missing yeah. and of course the idea that maybe for you know given that this is a currently an all gay panel um i should point <laughs> out to our straight listeners that like the idea that young people are doing you know gayness wrong is basically as seductive to LGBTQ people over a certain age as the idea that the youths are doing youth wrong is for just about anyone else. Yeah. Right. Like, so this idea that like the young aren't, aren't LGBT incorrectly, like it's very seductive and it like has everything to do with like, you know, the aging process and its ravages and how it really sucks. But like that being said, if it is real, I also think it stinks as a discourse. So it's like the whole thing is just like an, Ouroboros of like cursedness. Whereas, like, if this is real, it sucks. And if it's not real, which I suspect, it sucks that we're getting mad about it. Maybe the adults need a segregated internet where the teens don't have to deal with us. Because I feel like, you know, young people being yeah. uncertain, trying on opinions and positions that they don't like necessarily want to hold forever, being a yeah. uh, half informed and sort of only kind of understanding something and learning through exchanging with their peers and observing adults is something that like they should get to do like kids should get to have some opinions yes about sex without every yeah. adult who comes across yes. it correcting them and reifying their own social position by correcting them you know it's just like yeah exactly cuz i'm sure that there are people who hold the no kink at pride opinion in complete sincerity. And I'm also sure that those people are like 13. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like that's strikes me as like adult or yeah. child or taking the piss or like making a joke yeah. that we're too old to understand. Right. I mean, like quite possible yeah. too. And then the other thing that I think about with this discourse is like very often it's, it seems to be Tumblr posts and it's like, you know, we all talk about like how horrible it is that these kids have to kind of do their identity formation online but then, like, we don't draw the obvious conclusion that, like, maybe it's uncharitable to screenshot them doing so and, like, sharing yeah. it to our Twitter followers. It's like, yeah, then yeah. fucking let them do it. Like you were saying, Maura. Like, just, like, be kind. Like, if right. it's like as if your diary from middle school were suddenly, like, plastered in the New York fucking Times. Like, that's that's yeah. that's rough, man. Like, we're, we're lucky that we didn't have to do that. But, like, 
you know, like un unless someone's like tweeting at Joe Biden about their king, <laughs> kind of, like right. just assume it. This is kind of like a semi-private thing, and just don't fucking uh, don't fucking make it a big deal. They meant to write that down for themselves and maybe three peers. You know, yeah. my actual earnest opinion is that it is deeply unhealthy for society for old people to be as exposed to the thoughts of yeah. young people yeah. as we are. Like, I shouldn't yeah. know what 19-year-olds, like, what music they're listening to. I shouldn't know what discourse, like, what they're experimenting with words and thoughts and things. Like, yeah. for us, that was, like, us in our dorm yeah. rooms, 19, talking to other 19-year-olds and saying some unbelievably stupid shit. And old people never found out about it. And by the time they did, it's like we sort of workshopped it, like, beta tested it a little bit more. Like, it was kind of more ready for prime time. But now we have these internet platforms that are like social media. So everybody's using them and then it's anonymous. Right. So like, you don't even fucking know if somebody's 16. Right. And so many of these discourses, like, uh, I don't know how like deep into gay Twitter you are, Adrian, but this year, I feel like there was less of the no, no kink at pride stuff this year, but there was the polyamory at pride oh. discourse and everyone spent like two fucking weeks fighting about it. And it was literally one tweet by somebody <laughs> who was like, why don't polyamorous people get afloat at pride? Like we also face discrimination. And like, it's like, what? Yeah. it wasn't clear if that person was like what age they were, like what their situation was. It really felt like some sort of unformed, it's like a platform specifically for like thinking out loud. And it seems like something that you would say when you're thinking out yeah. loud. And then like 40,000 people <laughs> told this person that they were wrong. And then people also elevated it to like <laughs> the polyamory at pride discourse. Yeah. And like there was no discourse. It was literally a single tweet from someone who might have been like 13. Yeah. Then you have a meta discourse about the problems within the discourse. <laughs> Within people commenting about a non-existent problem. Yeah. Yes, which is what we're doing right now. We're yes. then like the echoes, we're like the wake up discourse. Eight months later. And the snake has eaten its tail and now we're on a podcast. Just ignore the youths. I mean, sure. I mean, fair, fair enough. Podcasts are the most cursed discourse. So I didn't even put that on my list. Fundamentally, yeah. But there is an element here also of like, as Michael was saying, it's not just that we shouldn't do it. It's noticeable that we're doing more and more of it. Right. Like at the equal rate as we should probably be looking away from what 19 year olds are doing, just like avert your fucking eyes. Yeah. Right. Like the more we actually do the opposite. Right. Like how I'm sure we're going to have some other discourses in this list that are all about like, just give them two years. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, stop looking at college students. Yeah. Right. Like they are not that influential. They're usually pretty marginal. By definition, they don't represent a gigantic constituency. Mm. Why do you have a reporter whose beat entirely seems to be getting them to like say <laughs> dumb stuff into microphones? Like, like, does that seem to you, right? Like you no longer have a upper Midwest correspondent, but you have someone who like, will go to Brown to be like, yeah. so how do you feel about safe spaces? Right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. that should give you some fucking pause, right? If you're like, if it is your job right. to do the thing that very obviously with the opposite shit happened that where you're like, uh, you know, like, uh, write me again in two weeks if you still think this, because it feels like you're just kind of spitballing here. Yeah, 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 yeah. This brings me, and I don't want to like jump the shark, but this is so, Adrian, your No Kink at Pride curse discourse is so similar to one I have that maybe we should continue the conversation so we don't wind up saying the same thing twice. Wait, I was going to say mine. I think this might be the same oh, one. Oh, wow. Tyler, what's yours? Wait, do we have the same one? Is it? Okay. Say it on three. One. Is it Gen Z hates sex scenes? Oh, no. <laughs> yes, so much yours. dumber than mine. That's so <laughs> dumb. Oh, my.
my god. Gen Z hates sex scenes was a discourse that I got so much of oh over the past god. year. Did you guys not get this? Was this real discourse or was it like a single fucking tweet? No, this was a real discourse. Well, here's the thing. It was a single fucking okay, tweet. Okay, so it both. So and both. then it was a single fucking tweet towards the beginning of the year, right? That like a few, uh, like I think it was like somebody tweeted like, oh, all these sex scenes are unnecessary. They're not necessary to the plot. Mm. And that incited discourse. And then the discourse <laughs> inspired a survey by UCLA. Oh, okay. Which found... You know, it was like a 1,500-person survey, not huge. Respondents were 10 to 24. And it found that what Gen Z say they want in movies and television are more stories that do not focus on romantic coupling as the primary, like, mode of character development or plot resolution. And more furries. Which, you know, yeah, way more furries. But it became this like allegation that like Gen Z is so prudish that they are so anti-sex. Wait, but the, they... the whole question isn't even about sex though; it's about romance, right? So it's like we've morphed from one thing to the other. Oh yeah, no, it's like not actually exact at all. But there was like some dumb tweet that was like, "I right. don't like sex scenes." But then all these things get wrapped into each other because then it's like the evidence yes, that Gen yeah. Z doesn't like sex scenes is that they feel like movies should branch out and not be so like monolithically about romance, which is a totally different opinion. Right. So it just like. The kids hate sex scenes. Yes. But they that's one person and it's not even clear they do. Also, like to the extent that the kids do hate sex scenes, how much is this informed by the fact that they are often watching movies with their parents? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like that's <laughs> oh my God. a question I have. I watch Disclosure Ooh. with my mom, <laughs> which has like a, the centerpiece of the film is like a six minute long like blowjob scene. And I was I was sitting there in the theater next to my fucking mom. So like, yes, yeah. I'm also against yeah. sex yeah. scenes. Yeah, in that scenario, everyone Absolutely. is against sex scenes. Everybody yeah. is like Puritan hat, yeah. buckle shoe. <laughs> 100% like, shut it down. <laughs> yeah. Comstock laws for when I am seeing movies with my parents at age 14. Absolutely. It also like... Do any of these discourses, like, bother to historicize this? Because, I mean, like, it is true that, like, I can see why someone who has grown up with, you know, freely available pornography might be like, yeah. look, this is going, this is eating a lot into the runtime here. <laughs> can we get back to the story? If I really wanted to watch people boning, I could yeah. see a lot more if I just put people boning in, like, literally any search engine. Dude, this is roughly my view on sex scenes, too. Not that I ideologically oppose them, but mostly they're boring. Yeah. They don't advance the plot. They're sort of fake. They have this like weird, like there's the sort of like soft focus thing. Like they just, I'm just like killing time until like something with actual character development happens. And so I don't think that Gen Z actually opposes sex scenes. Has either of you ever seen The Room, the Tommy Wiseau movie? Oh my god! No, with the, the most cursed sex scene of all time. It's like really, uh, it's like oh, yeah. yeah. How so? Oh yeah, it's rough. It's it's rough. Just like it's the least sexy thing you've ever seen, and like it's terribly lit. Is exactly what, what what Michael's saying. It's like like you're not sure why it's happening. You can hear the plot kind of moving backwards as you're as they're doing it. <laughs> it's just the whole thing is very strange. I've seen sex scenes that are played for like comedic effect yeah i've seen some that do a decent job of highlighting vulnerability or uncertainty by the characters yeah, yeah. like what what they're not good yeah. at is the sort of like you know maybe there's a violin playing 
and there's some like gauzy sentimentality around it and there's like you know a foot in a sheet kind of a thing like most sex scenes yeah, yeah. in narrative cinema do not use those interactions to like show you anything about the characters or their relationship they just kind of like you know like glitteringly show you that it happens yeah in this way that's like well that's very nice you know and and then cut and i i, I understand yeah. the idea of them as superfluous in that regard like i can have a degree of empathy for the straw man gen z figure <laughs> in, yeah. in that but like you know i think I'm interested in Adrian's point about readily available porn, because I wonder if there's a degree to which people are like expressing distaste with the content of sex scenes that's like like actually a misplaced discourse about pornography. People also aren't expressing any dissatisfaction with sex scenes. Yeah, though, too. Yeah, right. like I don't not, like this. Not in large scale, no. <laughs> and I, mean, I, I guess what what's different between pornography and sex scenes, as Michael and his mother discovered, <laughs> uh, is that one is consumed usually alone and one is usually you're in a community i watched uh, blue is the warmest color with my husband and a lesbian couple we're friends with uh, very mm. good friends with and mm. the sex scene went over just terribly in both camps in the sense that we were just like whoa that's a mm. that's a that's a lot of vagina and they were just laughing their asses off oh, yeah. and we're like we don't understand why this is funny and they're like we don't understand why you look so pale and we're like we're, we're just all having a bad time <laughs> a bad time was had by all that sex scene that sex scene is like 15 minutes it's super long. long that's one of those where i think like uh. the distinction between sex scene and pornography actually does sort of veer into that like ambiguous territory like that is clearly meant to, that's a sex scene that's clearly meant to arouse and it's comedy is that it fails okay. yeah yeah but wasn't there good discourse a couple years ago when there was an essay in i think like gawker or something about all the marvel movies and about how like everyone is hot but like no one is fucking in those movies and huh. there's this weird oh yeah like, we're surrounded by these images of these like two percent body fat like ripped dudes all the time but there's a weird sexlessness yeah to these yeah. movies and there's so little kind of desire or like realistic depictions of like how this actually would play out like all these like super yeah. hot people in like stressful situations and like i thought that was actually kind of interesting discourse I will say, as somebody who has seen a lot of the Marvel movies, because my wife loves the comic books, mm. it is impossible to imagine sex occurring in that world. It is so... What, just like logistically? Like they'd hurt each other because they're like no, shooting like, webs by accident and these shit? These people ha are not capable of any kind of like desire or pleasure. It's like, it's a, it's a senseless world. Yeah. It's like these weird denuded characters where they don't have any like real flaws. Yeah. They have like cute movie flaws that get like resolved in their little three act character arc. But like, yeah, in real life, they would like all be fucking each other and it would be like super messy, <laughs> but like, we're not seeing anything. But like, also like those kinds of bodies are the result of so much like discipline and denial of pleasure right yeah yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah it's almost like an asexual body by virtue of being so like sexually idealized except for one moment in i believe the third avengers right or something like that where captain america the most sort of square of the bunch sees himself he gets teleported back in time yes and he sees himself and he says that's America's ass. Oh, yeah. that's, a, that's a great line. I like the idea that the, the thing you can take visual pleasure in is his own mm -hmm. ass is very funny and very good. But it's the only one I can think of where like yeah. someone's like really, really uh, like, that's nice. That's yeah. nice. And it's his own ass. There was one sex scene between the Hulk, who's Mark Ruffalo, 
and I think the Scarlett Johansson character. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like very beautiful people. And it's just like, it's the least sexy thing I've ever seen. It's like, mm, these people do not have genitals. You know, that's what it felt like. It was like, they're just totally outside of that world. Yeah, there's there's another interesting thing with like these people who like, if you're that ripped, that's basically your full-time job. Like that's the only way you can look like that. And like, it is a lifestyle of like, that's basically all you're thinking about the entire time but they want to project this as like this effortlessness and like i always think about james mcavoy was in some dumb movie with angelina jolie a billion years ago where he had to get like super buff or because they all have to get buff for these movies now and he talked about how like the weird supplements that he was on just made him fart constantly and like <laughs> nobody wanted to be around him <laughs> and it was just like gross like people like draw straws to be like oh shit who's gonna get him a sandwich today <laughs> and there's something so kind of perfect about that it's like to get these bodies it's like you kind of have to be like a deeply like off-putting person or like give up, like make these other huge sacrifices. I believe the movie was called Wanted. What a title. But yeah, that's like the lifestyle that creates these bodies is so incongruous with everything we like about sex, right? You know, um, yeah. or everything that's supposedly like life affirming about sex. It's undisciplinedness. It's messiness. It's like sort yeah. of affectionate grossness, which is like not... I don't know. It just feels like they don't equate to me. Yeah, it's not fun having sex with someone who's like lightheaded with hunger. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm thirsty. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Michael, I think it might be time. For your cursed discourse. Wait, okay. I might have misunderstood the brief. So I have like my discourses are like specific articles and no, like, that's great too. themes that I yeah. found. Oh beautiful. Yeah. Go for I it. I started with that and then I couldn't. Yeah. I, I, I just Okay, and then it and then it became like a broader thing. So my th- this is like the easiest one, and this is basically like one article. So the one that I have thought about the most this year is the gender clinic whistleblower in St. Louis. <sighs> Who's this oh, alleged? Yeah. The headline in February, obviously on fucking Barry Weiss's website, was I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle. And it's this lady, Jamie Reed, who says, like, I was a sort of admin person at this gender clinic in St. Louis. And, like, we were, like, pushing the kids through care. And, like, no one gave a shit. And they were all, like, mentally ill. And we gave them, like, surgery and hormones with no assessment. They identified as attack helicopters. Exactly. And then immediately people read her, like, legal affidavit and were like, there's, like, a series of, like, very implausible claims in this. She said they were giving hormones to kids who identified as a rock and identified as a helicopter which isn't even a real thing and that you wouldn't get hormones for being a helicopter. Yeah. It's and like, an internet meme. It's just yeah. a, a yeah. very well-known like right-wing meme. Like I identify as a helicopter. So that was a red flag. And then the biggest red flag to me was that she said that kids were like, she said like numerous times, this was not just a one-off thing, but kids were routinely transitioning without the consent of their parents. Not possible. Which <sighs> would expose the clinic to huge legal risk. Yeah. This is not happening. And then, you know, people have to pay insurance bills. And in America, you have to fucking negotiate with your insurance company all the fucking time. So, like, they would notice, like, a $30,000, like, mastectomy <laughs> that their 15-year-old daughter had gotten. Like, no. <laughs> well, Michael, they did it for free because of woe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the thing is, like, there's then, like, the lack of evidence has to be evidence at some point. Yeah. And yeah. then in the month since, 
there have been like the local newspaper interviewed a bunch of parents from the clinic and they're like, no, we had a great experience. And like our, our kid was assessed like very thoroughly and like no one has come forward to corroborate her account. And like, this is the discourse that is like driving me absolutely fucking crazy all year. It's sort of died down in the popular press in the last couple of months, but also like that's because all these fucking laws banning affirming care for like also now adults are just quietly fucking being passed all over the place. But it's like this discourse of like the debate around gender affirming care and like the debate about like, should kids be assessed as in like finding one fucking tweet that is like about like kink at pride. It's like, once you sort of go all the way down to the bottom of like, wait, what are we actually talking about here? There's no evidence that this is happening. There's no evidence that kids are receiving surgeries and medications with no assessment at all. Like, there's not even like a confirmed case of it. Like, it's much closer to the sort of razor blade in the apples myth. Yeah. That is like, there's cases of it almost happening. <laughs> there's cases of things that maybe look like it happened at first. And then you dig into the details and you're like, oh, this person transitioned at like 23. So it really has nothing to do with yeah. like children at all. Everything is sort of tangential to the main point. And there's been this weird reluctance on the part of like actual journalists to clearly convey this to people that it's like, it's fine to debate stuff. It's fine to ask questions, I guess, in like a fucking vacuum. But what we're really talking about here is that there's plenty of evidence that kids are being assessed and no evidence that they're not being assessed. And like that has not been conveyed to people. And it's like, this is the thing that I've been tearing my hair out the most about all year long. Yeah, this is a this is a strong contender. You came with your first domination and just like that. Oh, that's only that's only one. Yeah. I got two more. My two are my other two are maybe even worse. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's so fascinating, right? Like I noticed that too that like it's always like what about people who want who regret it and detransition and it's always like people in their 20s who like transitioned in their 20s and it's like that sucks. Great. Okay. I don't know. But then it feels like <laughs> Yeah, like like that is a different thing. You're like, yeah, yeah. There are razor blades and apples. Here, I found a worm in a tomato. It's like, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if that's proof for the other yeah. thing. Like two different things. Trans children is one of those things where the imperative upon journalists and people sort of like commenting on this issue in the for the public consumption is to be as nuanced as yeah. possible, right? Whereas the reality, both of the science and of what's happening does not call for the nuance that the journalists are being called on to perform, right? right? There's this incentive to be like, listen, I'm going to give a lot of leeway and airtime to these, you know, people who are worried about this because that will allow me to appear unbiased and serious. Right. But then, you know, these are not like sides that are equal in their reasonableness, right? right? Like one side has a lot of empirical research and medicine on its side, and the other side has a lady in St. Louis who's making shit up uh, and, like, clearly not backed by any evidence at all. And there's there's nothing intellectually serious about covering a debate or discussing a debate without any investigation of the underlying facts. Right. That, like, this is something as, like, whatever. All of us are sort of pundits on some level. We give our opinions, et cetera. Sometimes it's, like, it's hard to know what you think about something, but then what I've found is that oftentimes once you get like the basic facts in front of you and like really get into the specifics, it's much easier to know what you think about something. Because you're like, okay, well, here's the evidence for this side. Here's the evidence for that side. Ah, it's, it's actually very clear what's going on here. And this is something where like we've whipped up this debate out of nowhere. But like if you actually describe to people like how few kids are transitioning, the experiences of like even these kind of political detransitioners that show up at these like city council hearings in random cities all over the country – most of them were years in assessment, right? They were socially transitioned for like two years and were on hormones for two years and they got a mastectomy. It's like 
I'm sorry, if you can't find me a case of this happening, much less large numbers of cases of this happening, I just don't think there's anything to debate. And it's like, then you get into these like tedious meta things of like, oh, well, you think it's not okay to debate. I'm like, no, of course I think it's fine to fucking debate, but it's like, we should have the facts in front of us if we're going to debate something. And it's like, we're, we're debating yeah, yeah. vapor versus like the entire medical establishment. And so this has just been like, a, as a methodology. You heard it here first, folks. Michael Hobbs thinks you shouldn't debate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm gonna clip this out of context. Oh, anti-free speech. <laughs> I think this is perfect. I mean, you've created sort of a turducken of curseness <laughs> here because like, first of all, like, let's briefly pause on that headline style. Like Barry Weiss, if nothing else, for 2024, do a different style of headline than like- Oh my God, I know. Here's a sentence. And here's another sentence that relativizes that sentence or yeah, asks yeah. a question. It's like, oh, like yeah. just, just get new material, girl. I thought I loved sex scenes. And then I looked at Captain America's ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing, which was almost on my list, but, it's, but then I realized, shit, this actually happened in 2022, except very narrowly, which was the Stanford banned the word American thing. Oh, dude, we did a whole bonus episode oh. on this. This is one of my faves. I know. Although our bonus episode was based on your blog post about it. So this is this is discourse on discourse on discourse. It was very fun because like I got to actually call people and be like, <laughs> what happened here? And they're like, ugh. Like, sorry. They were all really nice, but they were. I was, I was like, you're probably tired. And they're like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway, um, what the broader point, I think, uh, connected to this is like information asymmetry. These people who like spin these stories and then, frankly, also journalists that write these mm -hmm. stories and don't consider that one side seems to be entirely unrestrained and right. can just say whatever they want. Right. This lady in St. Louis is nothing holding her back. And like. The fact that I'm guessing that these clinics can't just be like, well, call, you know, Johnny's yeah, 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 parents. Yeah, yeah. They'll tell you, right? Like there's like HIPAA and all this shit. Like you can't just do that. Same with universities. Yeah. Like we are restricted in what we can say, right? It's the same way that like a professor is like, I got fired for my opinions. Like, and the, the school really wants to say like, yes, and your tendency to grab women's right. asses, right? But yeah. you can't because like you're exposing yourself to a lawsuit, right. right? So like, it's this interesting thing where like a journalist doing a, they said, they said kind of thing clearly needs to think about like, okay, who in this scenario can speak freely, right? right. The fact that a parent of a transitioning 14 year old may not want to talk to you yeah, yeah, given yeah. what's going on in the country yeah. makes perfect sense, yeah. right? Especially let's say if they Google Pamela Paul trans and they're like, nope, we're not yes. taking that lady's <laughs> call. Jesus yeah. Christ, yeah. right? Like it's, it's frankly the thing that any responsible parent would do, meaning you're not dealing with two co-equal sources of information and anyone with a brain between their ears right. should know that. And then instead you're like, well, this person has been so nice and forthcoming with, you know, this utter torrent of bullshit. Right. How could I possibly listen to the drip, drip, drip that comes from the professionals who are like, oh, right. I don't think we can comment on that. I'm so sorry. Patient confidentiality. Right. It's like, yeah, because that's their job and it should be. Yeah. And they have like these stories include this little parenthetical that's like the gender clinic right. did not yeah. respond to requests for comment. And like that might mean they're engaged in a giant fucking cover up, but it could mean that they can't yeah. reveal anything yeah. about their patients as a first principle. So it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. So you can't just print this stuff without exactly. any investigation of like what may or may yeah. not have happened behind the scenes. And like we now know that like all indications are that there's nothing there. Like there's been right. an internal investigation. There's been the AG is now involved. The clinic has now been shut down, which is really fucking sad. Oh, man. Huh. But like all the information indicates that like nothing happened. And like what this person 
thinks is this like massive medical malpractice appears to be like her misinterpreting events or not having complete information or acting in bad faith. We don't really know. Right. But it's like there just isn't any evidence at this individual clinic or on a much broader scale that this is happening. It's really unlikely that doctors would be like, oh, my God, you saw a YouTube video yesterday and now you think you're trans. All right, let's get you into surgery. 15 minutes. Get ready. We'll give you the anesthetic. I mean, there just isn't like none of this entire panic like makes sense once you actually get down to the logistics yeah anyone who's ever tried to get any surgery scheduled in the united states knows that like yeah jesus christ it's like yeah let's get you in there is not a is not really a phrase you hear very often for any procedure yeah especially kids too especially irreversible procedures on kids the idea that everybody just like gives up all of their critical faculties and it's just like let's get you onto the operating table kiddo at like age 15 it's just like again it's not plausible and like to believe something like that you need to provide really good evidence and we haven't had anything close to that right so i feel like i brought us down we were talking about sex and now we're talking about sad stuff i'm sorry yeah no but this is i mean as i say this is a real i led with like a little precurse and you you just uh a real curse discourse went like full (laughs) thermonuclear uh cursing the precursor precursor exactly so my next one is one I might be sharing with Michael, possibly, which again is one that has been around for quite a while. And what is cursed about it is just the way that, you know, like Bernie in my weekend at Bernie's, it like keeps getting like dressed up and like driven around town again. Mm-hmm. And this is identity politics. Oh, yeah. It's like, we're just like... Oh, is this monk? Is this monk adjacent? Is this, this is our, monk adjacent. Our old so, I'm sorry, I put that down before I heard that you had spent <laughs> seven hours recording. A, uh, um, so maybe we'll skip this one. But no. what's astonishing to me is just that, you know, both in Europe and in the US, I feel like there's been another round of discourse about the evils of identity politics. And what's really remarkable is that like... Incredible. No one bothers to really define or explain what the fuck they even mean by this, right? Like it's like, how can this discourse keep going on without any increase in sort of sharpness and delineation, right? I mean, I feel like there have been books in the past that have been... I think a little bit clearer, like uh, there's that book by, what's that called? Elite Capture by Ulufemi Taiwo. Yeah. But he's talking about a very specific subset, right? And he's very clear on that. Yeah. But largely, it really is just like, it's a discourse that still runs on vibes after all these years. And the same cases. I mean, I just read Yasha Monk's book, which I think you're like subtweeting there. And like, you know, this book came out last month. And he has these cases of like, this person got fired for their speech. And it's cases from like 2014. Yeah. And it's like, these have been litigated to fucking death. Like this guy, oh, David God. Shore, who yeah. got fired for like posting a study online, blah, blah, blah. It's like, we're going to do this again? Yeah. If you're going to these old cases that have been talked to death, yeah. there should be more examples of this by now, right? Th- this was like, what, now three years ago? And like, this is a widespread problem, but you can't give me one other fucking example of yeah. it than this? Yeah, and then, the, and then the fact that like, what gets exempted and what gets rolled in is just absolutely cursed, I think, right? So there's like, in Europe, right, like very frequently when they complain about identity politics, they're thinking about trans people, right? They think about things like queer theory, they think about Judith Butler, right? Like Judith Butler's entire thing in Gender Trouble is that they're like, oh, I don't think that the identity category woman is actually something we can effectively organize around. Like it's not in an essentialist way, right? Like, so it's in in some way, like their point at the time was like anti-identity politics, right? Meanwhile, the critics of so-called identity politics very often are TERFs, which like, I'm sorry, like if anything deserves that label, 
it would be that, right? They're like, oh, yeah. you know, women are naturally one way and that's what we should base our politics on. Like, I'm sorry, that feels like it really, it certainly quacks and looks like a duck, yeah. right? And that, but that's somehow exempt, right? So it's basically just like, do minorities do it? Yep, well then- Awesome. Then it goes on the pile, basically. Right, right, right the, right. the fact that, like, the longer you use this, the shoddier this term really gets. And it always includes this kind of narrative. Like, the left used to care about, like, real issues, whatever they are. And now, like, all about identity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Universal values, yeah. And, like bullshit like this is a thing that like in the 1970s like people like christopher lash critiqued about the new left right uh, what's his name todd gitlin is that his name like has said that in the 70s like there are people making that argument about the 1970s and they made it in the 1980s and the 1990s it's always like hey remember when you were politically active yeah. like that was okay that didn't count but the thing that the kids are doing now that's identity politics like, yeah every fucking five yeah. years it's like read a goddamn history book sorry this is like this is like my yeah, yeah. No, there was, in my reading for this, I read a bunch of old Pamela Paul columns, obviously. Nice. And she has one about like political correctness, like used to be funny. And the whole kind of premise of it is that like in the 90s, people, you know, complained about political correctness, but like there was a sort of jokiness or like a non-seriousness because the stakes were low of like the things people were asking for in the 90s. But now, and then blah, blah, blah. But it's like, well, at the time in the 1990s, they said exactly the same thing as now. They said that like, yeah. this is an anti-democratic movement that is like going to, you know, take us over the cliff. And it was like a bunch of college sophomores. And it's like, yeah, we're yeah. still doing college sophomore discourse now. So all that's happening is you're looking back at the exact same fucking panic because it never ends, right? We've been doing this for like 40 years. You're looking back at previous iterations of it and going, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Pamela, maybe it's not that big of a deal now. <laughs> like, wh what is the fucking point then? The previous 14 times we cried wolf, the wolf wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> but I've got a real good feeling about the wolf this time. Totally. I mean, right, like, was Pamela Paul tell me whether Newsweek was joking when it put the big words thought police on their cover, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Was I that, know. oh, I'm sorry. Did I, did I miss, miss the wink fucking emoji in 1992? Yeah, it's a much more academic debate and like every yeah. you know, feelings were not too inflamed. Like, no, it's the same thing as it fucking yeah. was now. We're just doing yeah. the same thing. And Yasha Monk is in his book very explicit about the fact that he's just doing identity politics. He's like, you know, they call it woke. They call it identity politics. It's gone under different names, but like we should all just agree on a term and discuss it. So he's basically admitting yeah. that like, this is just the same thing we've been doing for at least 30 years now yeah. and giving no new insights or information to it at all. He's just like, no, no, we're just continuing it. It's incredible to me to acknowledge that and just do it anyway. It's not like it's been, you know, a particularly robust intellectual discourse. Like, as you said, Michael, it's no, God. superficial complaints based on imaginary threats, repeated ad nauseum for going on now, like 30 years. Oh, wait, can I do one of my discourses? This, sure. this leads to my, what was going to be my third uh, discourse, Ooh. because this is basically the same as yours, Adrian, but like the year in word wars, Ooh. like if you look back at like the most cursed bullshit all year, there was an entire Pamela Paul column in the New York Times about like why it's bad to call prostitutes sex workers. Oh yeah. It's like what we lose when we say sex workers. I don't fucking care, Pamela. What, what, what does this really matter, right? And then the most cursed, Adrian, I don't know if you even saw this, but David Sedaris did like a little video thing, like a little video commentary, Andy Rooney style for CBS News 
where he's like, I don't want to call myself queer. His The kind of alleged joke that's built around oh, is like, man. I identify as straight because I used to identify as a homosexual and then I was gay and then I was LGBT and now I'm queer and I'm so sick of rebranding. I'm just going to call myself straight because anybody can be anything these days. And it's like, shut the, fu- <laughs> shut the fuck up. It's so boring. <laughs> It's like, and and his whole thing, I wrote quotes because I was so mad this morning. Oh yeah. He says, I don't know why I have to be rebranded for the fourth time in my life. And like, David, nobody is making you call yourself queer. If you want to identify as gay. Yeah. I forgot you existed until just now. And I was was real. (laughs) No one cares. In the prelapsal time of five seconds ago when I forgot that David Sedaris was ever a thing. And then he also, in this video, he says, I had a conversation with a woman who identifies as queer because she's tall. Like she's never been with a woman, but she identifies as queer because (sighs) she's tall. And it's like, this is another great grand tradition of the fucking identity politics thing is just making shit up. (laughs) I met a woman who I made up. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds like not a thing that happened. By met, I mean made up. Uh, Or like maybe he misheard something or something. It's it's like so many of these anecdotes. You've had this experience, Adrian. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, I know it's fucking fake, but like now I got to go look into it. Like, (laughs) this is so dumb. (laughs) A lot of the language wars... And I'm thinking specifically, like, this is basically Pamela Paul's whole beat. Well, and this whole thing. I mean, this, like, they're trying to change the way we talk is, like, one of the main arguments against identity politics, which drives me absolutely fucking crazy. Right. But, like, the the they, the they that's being referred to is actually a hyper-specific set of, like, slightly younger than me liberal and leftists whose worldviews I understand from seeing them online and being annoyed, right? It's, like, actually a very, very small section of people and the pressure that's being identified is just like the visibility of other approaches to the language yeah. or to the way of life. You know, like like today I I got drawn into a discourse today about this article that, you know, blamed partly to blamed a decline in birth rates on like an excess of women on social media talking about how hard it is to be a mother. Nice. <laughs> and it's like okay. in this article on Vox is like, <laughs> this is what's making it hard for, you know, millennial women like me to like take the plunge and admit that we want to have children because there's so much social media about how having children is hard. And I'm like, no, what you've actually identified is that you want or like kind of need everybody around you to be affirming yeah. your way of life and your choices 100% of the time. It's one of these classic like accusation yeah. is a confession things. Mm-hmm from the like anti-identity politics right or like sort of the pamela paul freak out set is that they point to the people they dislike as being so sensitive and of needing so much accommodation from others and then the actual substance of their complaint is i am not getting constant accommodation and cheerleading from others for every worldview and opinion i ever have it's like it's quite like cowardly and fragile in a way it's like you need the whole rest of your visible world to be constantly cheerleading for your worldview and not advocating Mm. or even expressing another one. That's sort of what my book's about on cancel culture, right? That like that contradiction is the secret principle of the thing, right? That like, it's a discourse that tells you that your own hypersensitivities have a different status than those of others, Mm -hmm. right? That like the person who like is sensitive in their language but triggers you, like, that's their problem. That's not your problem, right? Like, it allows you to feel like some kind of bold truth teller because, like, a person that you either misunderstood or made up, like, said something to you that, like, really seems to fuck you up, even though, frankly, like, I don't quite see why you can't just deal, you know? Yeah. The thing that I always think about is, like, sort of in urban 
debates. People lose their fucking minds about parking. Like there's no parking <laughs> spots near my house or whatever. And then when you actually get back to it, what people are actually mad about is having to walk like right. three minutes from their car. It's actually like very like low stakes. And I feel like with 99.9% of the language stuff, it's like we're talking about you getting a couple emails. Right. Right. If, if Pamela Paul does not want to say pregnant people in her columns, like I think that's pretty mean and silly of her. But every time she refuses to say that in a column, she's going to get a couple emails being like, hey, this feels bad to me. Yeah. That's the whole thing. <laughs> there's no like free speech, anything. Like there's other things in language. If you don't want to say like flight attendants and you want to say stewardesses and that's the hell you want to die on, you're like, no, I'm not going to change my language. You can. No one's going to send you to jail. You're just going to get some fucking emails from people being like, yeah, it's really weird that you continue to insist on saying stewardesses. And like with all the language stuff, that's all we're talking about, right? It's like if David Sedaris, I don't actually even think he'd get a single email, but it's like if people were mad at him for not saying queer, maybe he'd get some emails. Okay. (laughs) And it's one of those things that feels, yeah, we we, we called it sort of Andy Rooney-ish, but like we should be clear that like on the European far right, which has a lot more gay people than the American one, I would say, Mm. this idea that I'm not queer, I'm in a committed same-sex relationship is like extremely prevalent. So like, that's the other thing. Like these Mm. discourses sort of like this, this is sort of the tendrils of some pretty far-right things that like this, the anti-queer, anti-gender stuff, like come in this kind of aw shucks guise and be like, oh, Mm. kids these days are saying the darndest things, right? Like, but in the end, like the reason you're picking on those words is because like some pretty hellacious political actors, some pretty scary people Mm. have decided to make those culture war issues. Like obviously doesn't bear responsibility for that but like it's noticeable right like in the 90s one thing that we did have in the 90s that we i think we have less of today are these made up pc terms right like botanically challenged ho 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 right like yeah now like we tend to pick actual terms or terms relating to actually beleaguered minorities and very frequently it kind of comes with this thing in the background was like and maybe they deserve some of what's coming to them yeah, right? yeah like it's yeah. like like the whole pronouns thing we all can use pronouns right we all use pronouns but they're mostly thinking about trans people right like that's yeah. the scary that's the nasty part there that like you don't get mad about language change in general right you're expressing disapproval of language change in a way that will signal to certain minorities like yeah, if I if I get my way, uh, I'm gonna kill you, right? Like I'm I'm, yeah. I'm coming for you. And then when people are like, it kind of feels like you're coming for me. You're like, oh, you you easily triggered snowflake. Uh, you know, how could you, right? Yeah, no one is melting down over like people not understanding the difference between like disinterested and uninterested, right? Or like these other like ways that the language just sort of yeah. shifts over time. Or like yeah. something that was incorrect eventually becomes correct. Yeah, people don't like lose their minds about that shit. It's only the identity words. Yeah. This might bring us nicely to my third and final cursed discourse. Birth rates. Which was (laughs) (laughs) actually not about birth rates. I bundled that in. I think birth rates, birth rates, marriage, male loneliness, that's one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I could talk about it for days, but I've already made Adrian do two episodes (laughs) and probably another one in the future. So I actually wanted to talk about something. I reached back to, I had sort of forgotten about this. It was in February of 2023 that the CDC released its data 
on a large survey it does every couple of years on teenage mental health. Does anybody remember this? Oh, this was one of mine. Really? Yeah. The teen mental health crisis. The teen girl Ooh. crisis. Yeah. Right. There's just been a lot of discourse about teen girls and like what ails teen girls all year. Well, my yeah. bugaboo was that like actually a lot of the differences in the data got obscured, right? It was because what it hmm. showed what the data showed was that mental health outcomes were dramatically worse for girls than for boys. Mm. And that was across measures of things like reported depression and anxiety, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, like a large range of like pretty serious mental health factors and girls were faring dramatically worse than boys were. That data was even more distinguished for things like, you know, transgender, gender nonconforming, LGBT youth, mm. they were doing worse. And then a real dramatic outlier was teenage girls who belonged to indigenous Native American mm. groups. They were doing like particularly bad. And this got sort of digested by the pundit class in ways that A, erased much of the gender difference, B, uniformly erased what I thought was some of the most important part of the data, which showed a dramatic increase in rates of sexual violence experienced by teenage girls. Mm -hmm. But then it just became like, you know, the headline, teens are in crisis, what do we do about it? And every pundit in America decided that the reasons teens were in crisis was because of whatever they were already mad about. <laughs> oh my God, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's so boring. And it mostly, yeah. it was a lot of stuff like kids and their damn phones. It was a lot of people <laughs> blaming of damn phones. social yeah. media, even though the data had gotten worse since its last taking, I think it's an every two years survey. Uh, so the previous data from which this like dramatic decrease in teens mental health had been documented was from an era in which teens were already using social media kind of habitually. You right. know, it's like only right. a two year difference. So that's not really like an accurate measure of the impact of social media because social media was there already. There was not really a ton of grappling with the pandemic, which had been uh, the big mm. intervention since the previous data collection. And there wasn't uh, like really any acknowledgement of the sexual violence crisis, like facing teen mm. girls. It's like, you know, if you've got like one in three teenage girls reporting that they've experienced some version of sexual assault, yeah, I would think that would provoke yeah. some mental health difficulties. And if you've got, you know, dramatic outliers of mental health crises among populations like indigenous teens who are also facing, you know, like a lot of circumscribed possibilities who are like more likely to be in poverty, who probably have, you know, more racial marginalization and like fewer opportunities in their future as they like move towards leaving high school. Like, yeah, that would, I imagine, engender some mental health crises. You know, there was like not a willingness to like look at the data in context. It was just an assignment of it's the fucking phones. <laughs> right. It's always the fucking phones. Anything with teens. It was yeah. really like, get off my lawn. You know, it's like, yeah. this is the thing that wasn't there when I was a teenager. And therefore, right. it's got to be the new scary thing that's endangering our country. I was faintly aware of this discourse. Was there anyone who was like, is it because of woke? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yes. I was just going to say this, that the, the thing that struck me about also the marriage birth rates bullshit and also this was the extent to which the conversation was led by conservatives, mm -hmm. right? That like a lot of these alleged kind of like the new data is out and here's what it says about teen health crisis. They'll interview Jean Twenge, who's this like, it's the kids in their phones person. Right. Like that's her one shtick. She came out with like her third book this year saying exactly this. And she's like presented as this kind of neutral arbiter, 
but like her work is not considered very valuable by like actual academics in the field. But like she's able to lead this. And Jonathan Haidt, who's also presented as a expert on this, has a whole like thing about like why liberal kids, why like why it's so much worse among like left-leaning girls. And his whole thing is like, well, because of the trigger warnings, like they've been they've been coddled. And like that's why like they're so much more depressed. They can't handle all the challenges. But it's like, oh, so the thing you wrote a book about. Yeah. Yeah. The, the coddling of the American mind, their minds are too fucking coddled. So like here we are. It's like, okay, like th- this is just like you like hammering the same fucking drum you've been hammering for like a decade. But it's like these people are presented as just like neutral arbiters yeah. of like what does the data say? And all of these, like if you Google, it's everywhere these two people talking about this. Well, and also, I mean, if as Morris pointing out, if there's changes from within the last two years. Coddling of the American Mind came out, what, in 2017, 2018? Mm. The data they were drawing on is earlier. Those kids are like your dentist now, right? Like, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. old, <laughs> right? Like, the coddling of the American periodontist, yeah. Yeah, this is like, you know, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't potentially a, a recent pandemic be a much, you know, I'm not saying that is the explanation, but like, it is a thing that manifestly happened in the last two years, as opposed to, yeah. you know, the coddling of the American Mind, which is supposed to have happened over generations and yeah. it's not reflected in this change of the data. Well, what, what drove me nuts is like as a broader critique of just like even the concept of discourse for this issue specifically is like everyone sort of has this one little data point, right? This one report comes out from the CDC and then everyone fucking leaps to like their take on it, right? And like the pundit economy is based on like this new news thing happened. There's like a news hook and we're all talking about something and you have all these people who are like half informed or uninformed about the topic weighing in. And like, this is a huge field and like goes back for more than a decade. And like the rise in like teen anxiety, depression, suicidality among teens is a vast literature. And you have all these people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And like my like entire thing with this was that like, it's really fucking weird to say that it's all the phones it's really weird to say it's not the phones. Like it's just really hard to measure because everything's just correlation, right? It's like kids that use their phones are more depressed. Okay, well, are they depressed because they're using their phones? Are they using their phones because they're depressed? We can't really say that much. And then everything is fucking self-reported. We have a culture that is like, we're we're much more open. There's much less stigma about talking about things like anxiety, depression, suicidality than there used to be. So like there's some level of like people are now getting diagnosed with things that they had. It's like, it's so complicated to even know at the most basic level, what is the phenomenon yeah. that we are talking about? And like, as you mentioned with like the racial stratification and like education and poverty and stuff, it's like the data is usually garbage, different surveys find different things. And like everyone, instead of conveying like the super fundamental murkiness of like, what is the phenomenon in front of us? How is it changed over time? The data in the nineties is even fucking worse. Like, no one is conveying this to people that, like, we just don't actually have a great picture of even what's going on. But rather than conveying that, we then get to these interpretations. And everybody sort of lands on an interpretation when, like, this is why all the kids are sad now. But, like, we don't actually know that the kids are sad now. Maybe the kids were sad all the time, but they weren't reporting it in the 1990s. And there's, like, there was, I think there was, like, a big spike in the late 90s, and then it went down, and now it's up again. So you also kind of have to explain that. It's, like, it's just really complicated. And, like, 
I've actually spent a decent amount of time reading about this, but also I don't feel comfortable saying fucking anything because it's so complex and everybody's opinions are so like coagulated on just like what they already think the problem is. Michael, do you mean to tell me that there might not be one singular explanation for the emotional state of millions of people? It's just like really hard. I still think that like the actual phenomenon is what we need a clearer picture on because My understanding is that some of the rise in suicides, like actual completed suicides or attempted suicides in young people, is partly because they changed the coding for emergency rooms that they're now more likely to write down like suicide attempt. And so that looks like an increase in suicide attempts, but it might not be. It also might be an increase of suicide attempts at the same time as the methodology change. But like there's shit like that (laughs) that like you don't know if we're actually – talking about a real thing. And this has happened before that something that looked like a huge increase in suicides among youth were actually just MEs being more likely to write down suicide because the stigma against it went down. I believe this was in the sixties and seventies. So again, it's like, you have to start with a basis of what the fuck we're talking about. And then we can do our pontificating, but the entire culture just rushes to pontificate. And then a bunch of people who like half read an article or like half read a headline or whatever. It's like kids are sad because they're on their phones. Like the, the people get these kinds of impressions without a clear picture of the actual phenomenon underneath it. Well, it does feel like we're having that conversation in order not to have some others. And I don't even mean that, like, it's not like with guns, like where we all know what the end would be. And we just try to like not talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's that the questions are really difficult. There, there's a colleague at Stanford who's been doing, you know, native mental health for years. And like to look at her studies, it's like, it is noisy data. She's just like, you know, she's, yeah. it's, it's longitudinal studies. It takes forever. And like, I think what she's finding out is, super interesting but like that is her life's work it's like you know like you're not getting a really cool soundbite out of that researcher you're getting who it's complicated here a bunch of things playing together here are some things that definitely should happen but can i promise you that that'll fix it no right like yeah that's the kind of that's what expertise looks like and like yeah of course like why go for that if you can like have jonathan Hyde like uh, shoot his mouth off about it's the trigger warnings about the trigger warnings yeah 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 they're not resilient enough. Right. And also... That was a big that was a big explanation, yeah. Like, I, I don't know if you've looked into this more recently, Moira, but what I remember from then is that, like, suicides among teens actually went down during the pandemic, which, like, I don't know if that means that kids are less sad or if that means that they're just more closely monitored by their parents yeah. and they had fewer opportunities. But even stuff like that, and then the rise of guns, too, is, like, is it easier to kill yourself now? Is it harder? Like, I, I feel like all this stuff is so granular and there's things... Like, I I think there's a tendency of people to sort of resort to things like the kids are sad because of climate change. And like, that also seems a little one dimensional to me, honestly. But like, there, it it might not be like as ideological as we think it is. It might be like more logistical. And like, it's so hard to find like someone who's like a good faith interlocutor, like looking into this because everyone seems to have all this pre-existing stuff. And like, I would like someone to just walk me through the fucking research, but I haven't found somebody that I like basically like trust to do that yet because everyone's just like leaping to like their pre-existing thing or the thing they wrote a book about 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? Because on the one hand, you always want to avoid kind of talking about mental health in a purely therapeutic way where you're like acting as though the world is fine. And like, you're like, what, what are these people making a fuss? It's like, no, the world is objectively pretty fucked up. And like, yeah. it, one could see why someone would come to the conclusion that it's depressing. Yeah. Right. On the other hand, we all know from our own mental health that like, 
it's not all about like reactivity to the world outside, yeah. right? Like, yeah. and you know, anyone who's been around folks with mental health crises, like knows that it can be entirely independent of that. So like both of those things are true and we all know them to be true. It's weird how like when we, once we're talking about like young people, we somehow think that there's like this like direct causality or di this direct right. expression to things that we experience in our everyday lives to be pretty fucking complicated, right? You're yeah. like, the world's going to shit and I'm feeling fine actually yeah. right now, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> absolutely, right? Like, um, like, I feel like that's that's that kind of all of our modes or like, or it's beautiful out and I still feel like, like fucking shit, you know? Like, it's like we, we, we know this to be yeah. true. Why are we not giving young people that level of murkiness and complexity? My mood is at least 90% weather dependent. So I, I welcome climate change. Bring it on. More sunny days. A happier mic. Can't help but notice you're living in Seattle. <laughs> That's the mistake. <laughs> yeah. Why would you live in Seattle if, if you're if you're weather dependent in terms of uh, moods? Because my parents are here and they depress me even more than the rain. Oh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to be as miserable as possible. Wait, didn't you have another one, Adrian? Did we do your third one? I do have another one. This one might be cheating. It's about gender, but in an immediate way. And it gets to something that we've already alluded to that Michael likes to do, which is... Biking, which is about car discourse. Hey, I feel like this oh, one of the cursed yeah. discourses of this year, and I noticed this because I monitored the discourse both in the United States and in Europe, is that like the full-on culture warification of car discourse. Right? Yeah, it's I think that there's some kind of Rubicon. Like it's not like it wasn't before. People were rolling coal before, but mm -hmm. like something it went full on, right? Like Oh dude, yeah. There's like we mentioned the sort of no kink at pride, like having the same fight every fucking year, even though it's fake. Dude, the bike versus the car people, it's like, it's the same debate every fucking day. And yeah, <laughs> nothing yeah. changes. Are bikers good? Do bikers run red lights? Is there a war yeah. on cars? It's the same fucking thing all the time. Yeah. And so like a, a couple of data points here just for people who have been somehow blessedly spared this, uh, if mm. you exist, you sweet summer children. <laughs> uh, it would be, you know, stuff like the US kind of having a minor freak out about e-bikes because like kids are riding e-bikes and are getting killed. And then you're like, it's like that, that, like, what opinions, motherfuckers? Like, how are they getting killed, motherfucker? Yeah, like, yeah, and it's yeah, always yeah. like, it was always a clip by a truck that, like, didn't signal on a right turn. And, like, yeah, I kind of like, not to say that, like, kids shouldn't, like, cool it with like, e bikes, but, like, kind of feels like this is a car problem. Like, and yeah, I said yeah, it yeah. as a driver, yeah. not a biker, right? Like, it's weird if we're like, oh, how did this kid end up on an e bike? It's like, how did that truck end up making a right turn on a red yeah. light, right? Or the scooter discourse where it's like, oh, they're oh, out of God. control. And like, we need to limit them to 15 miles an hour. And like, the entire internet is like, wait till I tell you about cars, motherfucker. Why yeah. are we not limiting them <laughs> to 15 yeah. miles an hour then? Yeah. Yeah. Including in a country here where like, there is a legal limit, right? Like at least in Germany, right? Like they don't have one. So like, mm. it's like in principle, yeah, I guess you can go 200 kilometers per hour, mm -hmm. you know, but like, whatever. So there's that. Then there's like Berlin was recently voted in, which is a city I know Michael has biked in quite a bit, mm -hmm. uh, recently voted in a, what it's called, you know, a coalition led by the conservative CDU. And their first thing was like to get rid of all, basically all Corona era like yeah. Carlos Streets. Scarlitzer Strasse. Yeah. yeah so uh, Friedrichstrasse, right? So like all these fucking places that like I've driven in Berlin. I would never fucking go there. That's insane. Yeah. Like why would you? It's it's a busy shopping street. Like there, it's a grid there too. Like you could just 
just take a parallel street. That whole fucking section of the city should be closed to cars. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, like, it's just like an excuse yeah, to like stand in traffic. Like, why would you? Yeah. Like, no one would go there. Come on. So there's that. And then there was an article I, I meant to send you, Michael, but it's very, very funny. This is a, a, a German editor who, if he's a listener, hi, Ulf, who like is like my absolute bit noir. <laughs> he's like... He's the fucking worst. He knows it too. He's mm. the fucking worst. Mm. Uh, writing a whole column about how like anyone can build electric cars, but gas cars are quote high culture. Right? Not everyone can what? build it. I know. Sure, like, whatever, man. I'm like, I'm like, you're just like working out some shit here, man. Like, I'm, I'm oh, just like, just a tube of diesel that he's just yeah, yeah, on like a time. like a little <laughs> like, yeah, like a little hamster being like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so like the, the, the fact that like. I feel like there was an implicit gender politics behind this kind of car and bike discourse until this year. And now they're like, what subtext? We took subtext and we ran it over with our fucking yeah. gas burning car, right? Yeah. <sighs> My cyber truck, which is immune to penetration by Oh bullet. yeah, we haven't even <laughs> talked about cyber trucks. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, I mean, and, and also like, less facetiously there's also a huge rise in fatalities yeah. among cyclists yeah. and pedestrians yeah. in the united states like the an unprecedented rise yep. which that's another one that everybody blames on phones which i think is obviously a factor but they have phones in european countries and they're not seeing rises in yep. pedestrian bike fatalities so like there's something i think the phones are part of it but like there's something else going on that makes america uniquely bad yeah on like pedestrians and cyclists getting killed. And it's like, I think it's like a 30% increase. Yeah. It's like really bad. It's also quite regional. And it's like mostly kids, a lot of low income kids. It's like, it's a huge crisis, but it's not sort of like cast as the same kind of crisis as other things that are more acute because people think of it as kind of background noise. Well, and I mean, those two things I think are not mutually exclusive, right? Like on the one hand, traffic deaths have always been background noise in the US. At the same time, like they've always been a way of telegraphing whose lives were worth something, right? I always think about the fact that like, if you've driven in San Francisco or biked in San Francisco, right? Stop signs at every fucking intersection like, mm -hmm. all the time, right? And then there's these areas with only traffic lights where the lights are, I mean, they, they're getting rid of that now, thank goodness. But like when I first moved to the city and until I think about two or three years ago, when a good, good hearted supervisor finally got involved, like in the Tenderloin, right? Which are like, as I think the most kids in the entire city, but uh, they tend not to be white, right? It's like, all one-way streets, everyone's going fucking fast. Yeah. Everyone's telling these stories about like, oh, you get carjacked if you stop there. So people just like fucking step on it. It's not true, but like whatever. Yeah, you can you guys can listen to several episodes of uh, <laughs> Michael's and Peter's podcast that, mm -hmm. that you had a nice sort of uh, San Francisco trilogy there, which I <laughs> yeah. was, very, was uh, very much about this, right? And like, it's all about like, well, kids growing up there don't really deserve like their deaths are kind of priced in, right. right? And I think that it's not an accident that we're seeing this rise in a moment right after we've all sort of accommodated ourselves to mass death in COVID, right? right. We're like right. the people who who um, are dying deserved it anyway, right? Like that's kind of like what half the country seemed to be thinking anyway. Mm. Why should I be mildly inconvenienced by this mask or whatever, right? Like, mm. like fuck granny, right? Like, and this is basically fuck granny, but like, with a bigger engine, I guess. Dude, I, yeah, I got in like a fairly minor bike accident recently. I like fell down on some like uh, trolley tracks. Like this Ooh, is the kind shit, of thing that's that happens scary, once every yeah. couple of years if you bike in a city. But like the weirdest thing was like, this was like 4 p.m. on a Thursday or something and nobody stopped. Oh, Like the trolley went by, cars just like went around me. And I think I'm totally projecting here, but I guess the idea is like, well, it's his fault. 
you know, he fell, like, I don't need to pull over and like ask if he's fine. But it was like, so radicalizing that like, I wasn't super injured, but like, I was like visibly bleeding. Wow. And like, no one checked to see if I was okay. And like, that was so like, scary that it's your if you're sort of, I guess, a societal outgroup, or like people think it's like, gay or feminine or whatever to bike and like, hey, I shouldn't be biking here anyway. It's like, oh, well, then he like deserves to fall down and be like bleeding in the street. It was so fucking weird. Plus, maybe you were trafficking, right? You were you were just pretending <laughs> to bleed so that they could traffic someone. They, 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 they thought I had my I had my zip ties with me. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. They spotted me from a mile away. <laughs> it's hard not to project, right? And to think about like cars are obviously how we. It's the easiest way to telegraph whose safety and security and comfort we value in a society, right? Yeah. Yeah. I also can't help but think, again, going back to one of your podcasts, of an amazing scene in a book by a friend of the pod, David Brooks, mm. in one of his books, right, where he's like, this person didn't run me over with their car, pussy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like these Vermont liberals that yeah, like stop like, for you at an intersection. Yeah, they're like yeah. latte sipping, like they wouldn't even run me over, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, bring it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I also have qualms with whoever did not run David Brooks know, over with their car. Come on, come on, let's get it together. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there, there's also, I mean, not to be like super mean to dudes, but there's also like this weird kind of male entitlement thing in like driving politics where like it's very yeah. difficult, I've found, to get people to see beyond their own individual experience, right? If you're like, hey, we should have like more bike lanes protected. Right. And they're like, well, I don't want to bike. And like, great, you don't have to bike. Like even in the Netherlands, the famous Netherlands, it's only like 50% of trips are by bike. Like people drive there, people do other people. There's other ways of getting around there. And so just because you individually don't want to bike or can't, or you live on a hill or whatever, the fact that we have like safe ways for kids to bike to school, like just is a societal good, right? Yeah. And the more like biking does not pollute, and driving does. And so we should probably try to shift people from the polluting way of getting around to the non-polluting way of getting around. But it's like people, you hit this wall with people yeah. where they're like, well, I can't bike because it's cold. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to make you bike. But there yeah. are many people in the city who can't afford a car or like they don't mind the cold as much or like they have shorter trips and they want to bike. And right now they can't really do that because it's unsafe. Yeah. But like that break between individual and societal good, I feel like there's just something so kind of like sort of conservative about it where it's like you're just trying to get somebody to see things from another person's perspective and they're seeing it as this like imposition like you're going to come door to door and like take their car away from them right and like it's not an attack on you it's really just so other people can do something they want to do if you don't want to do it you don't have to that's step two but like let's not put that in there <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of the language wars right yeah the idea yeah. that other people are living a different way and are visible to you and, and might even, you know, have some public policy or resources designed to accommodate their different mm -hmm. life, that mm -hmm. this is an imposition right. on your way of life right. is, you know, a common thread. I think I, this also reminds me a little bit of what we talked about, Adrian, in our gay marriage episode about mm -hmm. the argument that gay marriage would devalue yeah. straight marriage. It's like acknowledgement of other ways of life will mm -hmm demean me because I do not just need to be free. I need to be hegemonic. I need to be exclusive right. Right. in my worldview. And it's like, it's, it's quite fragile, actually. Right. It's like quite like defensively, like proudly myopic, right. but also just like afraid of difference in this way that seems right. like, you know, like kind of morally immature. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's exactly spot on, right? The car is a way to make your own personal choices 
hegemonic for other people, right? Like you can ignore a biker. It's a lot harder to ignore someone driving a fucking huge truck. Yeah. You change social space around you when you do that, right? And it's like this way mm -hmm. that your choices can radiate outward way more than if someone chooses to walk, right? Like it's really not, right. not that big a deal. You restructure space through your particular, your own individual choices about how you decided to get butter right now. Like that's how you right. change right. the character of the urban environment or the suburban environment around you. And I think that's exactly right, that like that there's a certain kind of expectation that comes from it. And the fragility is part of it, right? Like we have these cars that are like, like getting quote unquote safer and safer. And what are they getting safer at? They're getting safer for the people driving in them. I'm imagining right. increasingly outlandish scenarios, including right the Cybertruck, which like is apparently like set up to survive Mad Max Fury Road or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In case Immortan Joe comes for you. But what they mostly do is endanger other people, right? They, they make other right. people's days manifestly more dangerous by you being involved in any way. Right. There's also the, the like the sort of conservative conception of the car as freedom. Yeah. There's a Prager U video about the war on cars that I watch sometimes because it's like such a nice. fucking rich text. And the whole thing is that like, you know, a car allows you to go sort of door to door from one place to another place directly where it's a yeah. train, you have to go there and you have to wait, whatever. And so it's like cuck shit to like wait six minutes for the train or whatever. But like, yeah. first of all, that's the door to door thing is true of like walking and biking too. So it's not unique to cars. Yeah. But also there's this really interesting thing where they cast Cars are sort of fundamental freedom, but if everybody drives a car, right. it now takes you three times as long to get to where you're going, right? So it, it, it's this kind of great metaphor for how like an individual freedom, like an individual conception of freedom actually makes everybody worse off, yeah. right? If you've ever been to like developing world cities, like in Dhaka, Bangladesh, where I went for a project once, it's like the traffic goes at like two miles an hour. It takes hours to get anywhere because there's not that many roads and like they're all clogged with cars and there's like buses with like hundreds of people in them that are sitting in the same traffic as like one lady with like three empty yeah. seats in her car and it's like it makes everybody worse off to have this much traffic but it's like in this individual conception of freedom of like well i get to do what i want it's like well you kind of don't because like in a society we all affect each other yeah so it's not a meaningful understanding of freedom in this particular context because when everybody does something, it makes it shittier for everybody. But it's like there's this weird, again, this kind of like refusal to consider things in that way. Now I brought us down. I, I bummed us all out. I'm sorry. No, that's perfect. Well, I think we can take it back up again by nominating Ooh. our Kirsty. Who wins the Kirsty for 2023? Yeah. Oh, you want to do honorable mentions? Quick honorable mentions or dishonorable mentions. Did anyone have like things that almost made the cut? I had... An honorable mention. I was like, I don't know if this is actually cursed because I think it has made me think more deeply about this. <laughs> but I feel like uh, there have been some kind of cursed discourses around the concept of trauma. Mm. This is not bringing us back up. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, Failure. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Quite the New opposite. York Magazine cover story. And I want to say like September. Yeah. Profile of Bessel van der Kolk, kind of takedown-y that like investigates the concept of trauma, not only as it has been clinically defined in van der Kolk's psychiatric school, which is very like somatic oriented, but also as it has become a sort of a locus of epistemic authority within these discourses of quote unquote identity politics, right? I think this is sort of like actually a reaction to me too that nobody wants to admit is a reaction to me too you know it's like what you're actually saying is that when you say that trauma should not be a locus of 
you know, political authority, what you're actually talking about without saying it is like all these rape victims who you don't particularly want to have to listen to that much or whose, you know, truthfulness, you want more authority and, and leeway to sort of doubt. So I think that's like one of the threads running through trauma. But I also think that there's legitimate critiques of this like subject position and it's like sort of political imperatives that have been sort of like clicked yeah. through it that have arisen especially over the past few months that i think have like actually really like deserve more critique but i just do not trust any of my interlocutors in the public sphere to yeah. do that in good faith and in a way that does not act ultimately fuel an anti-feminist project that is you know antithetical to right. what i have devoted my life to so uh this is a an anxious, Kirsty honorable mention. It's like a good and this, bad discourse. <laughs> I have a nomination that's very get off my lawn, kids kind of thing, which is oh, yeah. white people making weirdly like disgusting, like deliberately disgusting TikTok food videos. Oh, the fetish content. I think it may have started out that way, but it now is mostly like in order to bait mostly creators of color to like duet with it using oh, the TikTok yeah. duet function and comment on how mm -hmm. gross it all is. And it's like, I just feel bad for the amount of mayonnaise yeah. that gets wasted. Like kids, <laughs> this is a, like, don't, don't do this. Don't do this at home. Anyway, that was mine. Yeah. Someone's cleaning up their sink. Like, why did I yeah, do this? Yeah. What, what, what is this virality yeah. worth it? Okay. I have one that I feel like neither one of you guys are going to know anything about. Cause you're both like smart people, like academics who like read shit. I got, like weirdly obsessed with did you guys follow the Shein influencer junket? No. Where they oh, sent to China. There was that one like self-love influencer who went to the Shein confidence activist. Yes. What confidence the hell does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and she like went to I the sweatshop obsessed. and like <laughs> So yeah, it's this low cost fashion brand, which I had never heard of before. Cause again, we have like different internet algorithms. So like, I don't get fed this shit, but it's like, yeah, fast fashion. And they've been accused of having like sweatshops and stuff. And so they found a bunch of influencers to do like a, like a North Korea, like <laughs> junket tour. Like we're going to show you our factory, but like, obviously they're not really going to show you the factory. So they found what appear to be like, some of this is going to sound mean, but like some of the dumbest people on TikTok to go send out. And one of them was this woman who like in her like bio thing was like under her, like as her title was like confidence activist, which I, the whole internet was like, come on, <laughs> what the fuck is this? And then I like every other gay man on the internet, I got like super obsessed with this lady because she's just like, she honestly like seems like a nice person. I don't want to like go overboard, but also she doesn't like, they're sending people out there who just don't know very much about like apparel or sweatshops. And like, I kind of sort of did this for a living when I worked in international development. I did a lot of stuff with apparel companies and like none of these people have like even the most basic understanding of like how this, how this works. Right. Her defense, because obviously she got like super duper criticized for like, you're just going on this like fake tour and then you're promoting the brand and saying like, I checked, they don't have sweatshops, you guys. Her defense against all of this criticism was she's like, I know, I know they're serious about this, you guys, because like they paid me <laughs> like so much. Like you guys don't even know, like they paid me like a lot of money, you guys. And she's, oh, bless she, you. she's just saying this as if like, oh, if we knew oh, that sweetie. she was getting paid a lot, we'd be like, oh, 
in that case, this company's very serious about sweatshops. And I was just like, oh, I don't think she's like a bad person. I think it's just like they found people who don't have a lot of like a sort of an in-depth understanding of foreign policy. And it was like, look, the size of the bribe would indicate that this oil <laughs> just, company takes this spill very seriously. They're just they're investing in their response. <laughs> and like, man, some people on the internet were like too mean to her, I think. But like, it's also just so funny to me to defend this by being like, guys, I got a lot of money for this. <laughs> anyway, she got her bag. Fair enough. You know, I don't know. There's worse people in the world. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to get paid <laughs> for uh, being a sweatshop apologist. I mean, it's very <laughs> bad she identifies as fat she had a lot of fat phobic fucking bullshit as well and like there's the, you know there's like the mean criticism and then i think there's like the good faith criticism and i'm like really trying to stay on like the good faith criticism and look she she said she was a confidence woman in her in her body <laughs> that didn't help. people get being like shorten that give us a shorter definition <laughs> So that was, I don't know if that's cursed discourse, but it was like, I, I, awesome. I didn't tweet about it. I was like, this is like my, my shallowest, like my worst self, yeah, yeah. but I really got mm-hmm. obsessed. But those are, I mean, wow, we, we really, we have a lot to go on, um, but I guess now we move to the votes. I know my vote. My vote of the most cursed discourse is Michael Hobbs nominee, The Language Wars. I think that is cursed. Ooh. I think it is stupid. I think it yeah. is especially vacuous. And that is my that is my vote for the Kirsty of 2023. Ooh, yeah, I like it. I think I'm gonna have to go the same way because it's also the the one that's been with us the longest. And I feel like right, like when something new comes down the pike, it's kind of understandable. It's some people whose job it would be to question things. I can fall down on the job for a couple of years. We've been falling asleep. On, they've been falling asleep mm. on the job for 35 yeah. years. Like this yeah. needs to, people have like retired having done this, <laughs> right. right? Like that is officially too long. Like this is, right. you know. The no, the children are wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm with Moira. Mm. My actual one is all the fucking marriage discourse mm. all fucking year of like, does marriage help people? But you know, birth rates, all this fucking nightmare bullshit that we've had all year. But like you guys said, you've covered it before. <laughs> so for in, in the interest of brevity, I will, I'll go with the word wars. That's another one that we're just never going to not have. Yeah. I mean, I guess also because it's unlike the marriage thing where like gender conservatism could easily find another venue. Right. And when we talked to Rebecca Traster, she made that point that like it goes away and then comes back. The word wars thing is like, it's also so fucking easy to do. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why it just never goes away. Because someone's like, oh, shit, did I have a column due tomorrow? Ah, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> did, someone, did someone use a use a word and or not use a word in an Instagram tile? Like, sweet. Yeah, right, yeah. I, I, I can shit this out and, and still get a little bit of sleep in. Yeah. Right? And like, I think as long as there's going to be you know, deadlines, like they're going to be journalists who are like, yeah. we'll go for this. <laughs> <laughs> the real problem is deadlines. Yeah. All right. I think there you have it, folks. The worst discourse. You heard it here first, yeah. All right, thank you so much to Michael Hobbs. Thanks, guys. Our esteemed guest. Thanks for giving me a practice run on this. I can't wait for uh, next year's Cursed Discourses, and I hope we get to have you back. Because there will be worse. It will only get worse. Have me back to talk about the Sheehan influencer for like two hours next time. In Bed with the Right, would like to thank the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research for generous support. Jennifer Portillo for setting up our studio. Our theme music is by Katie Lau. Our producer is Megan Kalfas. 